Good morning. Good morning. Doug just said, good luck getting this crew quiet. Good morning, Three Lakes. Good morning. Have you quiet down? If you're coming in from the outside, come on in and find a seat. We're going to get started this morning. Um, Before we get started, uh, I don't know, but I work at the school district, and this is kind of like our busiest time of year, so everything feels chaotic right now. Just the whole world feels chaotic, but I wanted to take a second. We've just gotten out of spring sports season, so I wanted to recognize our spring athletes in here for a second. I know we have, if you are track, raise your hand. Why don't you stand up, Sam Epler? 
And we have Nate, and we have, I know there's a Northland Pines high jumper in here somewhere. Our uh, track season is wrapping up. We have students going to state. So, Nate, who's going to state? We have a good, a good bunch of our crew headed to state. Nate is a coach with the, the track team. We have softball in here. I know we've got Emily. Raise your hand. She's like, no. Is anyone else in softball in here? We have girls soccer just finished up. Boys baseball just finished up. So it's been a really busy season. We just had graduation at school, which we're going to be honoring our graduates here today. But um, just wrapping up a ton of stuff at school as we kind of shoot toward the finish line. So... Now it's Memorial Day weekend, and we welcome you all here this morning. If you want to stand up, we're going to start our morning with a little bit of worship this morning.
seated. Well, good to be with you this morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, my name is Tim. I am the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us this morning as we gather together to celebrate our great God and Savior. A couple things to bring to your attention this morning. First, as, as a church, we talk about how we want to be about three things. We want reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Christ, and serving others. So a couple opportunities in the days and weeks ahead to do each of those things. Right? So coming up on the 4th of July, we are going to distribute water during or before the parade that goes through town here. We did that last year. It's just a way to bless our community and to, like, as Jeremiah says, right, at the Exile Code of Babylon, to seek the welfare of the city. Right? We want to just bless our community. And so we're going to distribute water. So two things you can do with that. One, you can help us distribute water on the 4th of July itself. second thing you can do is we're looking for water donations that we can then distribute. So if you have water, want to donate water to that cause, you can bring water here to the church and we will, you can just set it outside the office and we will find a place for it until the 4th. Um, when it comes to, to growing Right. We have VBS coming up this summer. It's an opportunity for our children to grow and to know more and more about the love that God has for them in Jesus. So we would invite you to sign up children, let children you may know in the area know about VBS coming up this summer. It is July 11th through the 14th at 6 to 7.30 at night. Um, so we would encourage you to... yeah. Have that on your radar to invite families you may know. That's a chance to serve. If you um, would like to help out with that, you, we would love to have you serve our church by um, volunteering in any way. You can talk to, to Ian, Pastor Ian, about, about that. He would love to plug you in, I'm sure. So starting, starting next Sunday, um, during the sermon, we're going to have uh, what we're calling Children's Church, right? And so for children ages. Four through seven during the summer. There will be children's church downstairs during the summer, um, just as a way to keep them engaged. And um, yeah, so during the sermon, we'll, we'll dismiss from here, but that starts next Sunday during the sermon. We'll have children's church. Also, next Sunday is our annual meeting. So if you are, especially if you're a member here, we invite you to be a part of that. Be here um, as we talk about what we think God may have for the church going forward, and also we'll vote on a number of things. So this, this Sunday morning, we're a couple things to commemorate and celebrate. One, as the court did, is Memorial Day weekend, and so we want to just take a moment to reflect and remember and thank those who have served our country and um, yeah, we also want to remember those who have given their lives for our country. Remember those, and then we have to say thank you to those of you who have also served our country. The other thing we want to remember and celebrate this week, this morning, is that we have a number of people here in our church who have graduated this past week. Um, so we want to celebrate them, and so to kind of commemorate that, I'm going to invite Pastor Ian up, and he's going to uh, help celebrate some more. 
All right, so we have uh, three kids that were involved with a youth group here that are graduating this year. So I'm going to call them up. So Sam, Emily, if you guys want to come up, that would be great. And also I had talked to a couple people to uh, come and pray for them. And also, um, Dave, if you want to come up. But as we're doing that, I wanted to uh, highlight a couple of people that have been doing some awesome work in our community. Um, so Jen West is the communications director at school. And I don't know how many of you guys were at the graduation on, Sun, uh, on Friday night, but it was a great graduation. And so thank you, Jen. That was, that was, it's awesome to see you working in the community. So thank you for that. So this is Sam. Uh, Epler and Emily Lubui, you guys are graduating this year. We're excited for you guys. The one that was not able to be here was Noah Davies. Um, Noah is also part of our um, a part of our youth group and church body, um, and he also graduated, but he wasn't able to be here. So, as you guys go out, we want to pray over you guys, and we also have a cake downstairs to celebrate afterwards. But we um, want to pray over you guys and. Uh, send you out well as you uh, finish this huge milestone. So I asked your parents who would be people that would um, be important in your life. Um, so I asked your mom, Emily, and she said, Sue Beth. So she's going to pray for you. And Sam, I asked your parents, and they said, Amy. So if Amy's here, she's going to pray for you, Sam. I'll, I'll open, and then I'll give you guys the mic. And I'll let you finish up, Dave. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these graduates. Lord, we thank you for the fact that they just have worked so hard and done so much to um, finish this huge milestone in their lives, Lord. I ask that you would bless them as they go. Help them to, um, help them to always focus on you, always have you as a part of their lives, and just allow them to have you to give them strength. Uh, we know that they have been a huge part of this church, and we thank you for their time here, Lord. And um, we just thank you that we get to celebrate with them today, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Father God, as creator of the universe, I thank you for making Emily. I thank you for giving her breath and life, for protecting her and growing her to the capable young woman she is today. Thank you for her parents, and her grandparents, and her siblings, and her aunts and her uncles, her cousins. Thank you for the others who have influenced her to this point in her life. God, I thank you for this time of celebration and transition. And I ask that you would keep her, keep your promise to her, to guide her along the best pathway for her life and advise her and watch over her. I pray that she would seek you, that you would put a holy hunger in her soul. Give her a desire to know you, the one who loves her passionately. Give her a thirst for your word that is true and that will sustain her. Surround her with people who will be good friends, good influencers, mentors, and coaches. God, we trust you to provide, to protect her from evil, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. 
We thank you for the gift of Emily. And I look forward to seeing what good things you have in store for her in the years ahead. Amen. Dear God, we thank you so much for Sam. We thank you for who you made him to be, that he is smart and capable and determined and talented um, for what a gift it's been to be along on the first 18 years with him. Um, for this church body and for his family. We thank you for the experiences that Sam has had and the ways that he's grown um, physically, obviously, um, into a great man of God. And, um, yeah, just having um, a seat to watch that all unfold. Um, God, we just pray for um, Sam as he steps out. And um, he's still tucked under your wing, God, and we thank you for that. And we pray for um, wisdom and clarity for Sam on exactly what those next steps are. And um, God, we know without a doubt that, doubt that you know what those are. And we pray for this next chapter for him that it would be full of um, growth and learning. And we're so thankful that you're going with him. And um, we just pray that Sam would look back on this crossroads of his life and so see like so much evidence of your hand and how you led him and cared for him in this next chapter. So um, we love you, God, and we thank you for Sam and who he is and the gift that he is to so many people. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear Lord, we pray for Noah this morning, even though they can't be with us, Lord. We ask that you would bless his steps, protect him in his next step, Lord. Um, we thank you for him and his just the time that he's had here. I ask that you send him out well, help him to stay strong in his faith, and help him to just learn well, grow well, and always rely on you, Lord. Father, as we have had the privilege to watch these three uh, young people grow up and as a church and as a body to encourage them and watch them grow uh, as they move forward, uh, I would just pray that they would continue to look towards you, that they would seek you in, in their different areas in their lives where they are, are, are going and that they could be lights for you in the areas where they're at. Um, thank you for uh, their families. Um, I thank you for this church body rallying around them and being able to know that while they're away, um, they are still in our thoughts and our prayers. And uh, we thank you for each one. And uh, we pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Okay, we're going to stand and worship here in just a minute. Um, the next song we're going to sing is, is Build My Life, which how appropriate is that? We're talking about changing things and moving forward and building things. And, you know, this week with it being so busy, my, my life has felt chaotic and my house is a mess and the dishes aren't done. And I've caught myself, like, walking into my house and doing something small. Like, there was change on the counter and I picked the change up and I put it in my change jar and I felt like I accomplished something because that's how bad it is right now. 
But the point of it is, like, I was keeping this momentum going. Like, I felt like I was, okay, we're moving forward, right? And that's what life kind of is. And for our graduates, that's what it's going to be like. There's times when the momentum is slow. The word momentum does not mean fast, and it doesn't mean slow. It is continuing forward. That's what momentum is. And when we're building, some of those steps are going to be slow. Some of those steps are going to be hard. Some are going to be fast. Sometimes you're going to make big leaps, but we're constantly building. So I want you to stand. We're going to sing Build My Life, which it is a worship song. It's talking about worthy of every song we could ever sing. It's a worship song, but at the chorus, I will build my life upon your love. And that's what we're hoping these graduates, that you would take that with you, that you're building upon something that we've established here in our community and in your families and in your church and in your faith. So stand with us this morning.
Father, we praise you that the name of Jesus is indeed powerful, it is indeed mighty, that it has no rival, it has no equal. And yet, God, we confess that so often we live as if the good gifts that come from you are more valuable to us than Jesus himself. We pray that you would reveal that sin in our lives if it is there. You would show us how matchless the name Jesus is above all things, above even your good gifts. We would live lives that reflect that truth. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were if you were here with us last week, you may have noticed that I was not here. Or maybe you didn't notice. And that's, that's fine. But the reason I wasn't here is that Vanessa and I and our son Elijah, we were we were up on Madeline Island in the Apostle Islands. And I was running a, a half marathon up there. And as I was like running that race, thirteen miles of not a lot going on. There's plenty of time for my mind to wander as I'm running this race. And so as I was running this race, and I was thinking about today's passage, like I was, it struck me how unlikely it is that I would be running this race. And my mind kind of went back through history, like think of a number of reasons that it's unlikely that I'd be running this race. So we can start like six years ago. Like six years ago, I like couldn't run a quarter mile. Like straight, right? And so, and I had like no desire to run. Like I just, running was not on my radar. If you had told me six years ago that I would be running a race on an island in the middle of Lake Superior, like I would not have believed you, right? So that by itself makes the fact that I was doing that race pretty unlikely. But if you think a little further back in history, it becomes even more unlikely, right? For one thing, like the half marathon as a race distance like, didn't exist until 1965. Like, the very first half marathon was 1965, and, like, the idea of running or jogging as a hobby, like, was an almost foreign concept until the late 1960s. So, like, Strom Thurmond, the, like, former long-serving senator, like, he was once stopped by police in Washington, D.C. for, quote-unquote, suspicious activity. Right? But the suspicious activity was jogging, right? That's with 1968. Like, like people didn't jog. Like, if they saw a grown man running, they assumed something was up. Right? Right? Right, so, like, the idea, like, to someone in the late 1960s, the idea that someone would run, again, a half marathon on an island, like, would be unthinkable. Right? But as unfathomable as, like, running a half marathon would have been to me six years ago, it would have been to anyone... 70 years ago, the idea of me running that race would have been far, 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 far more unfathomable to the people in Jesus' day and culture. And not because of my physical condition, not because half marathons didn't exist, 
but because the idea of a grown man running at all for any reason was unheard of. It was shameful for a grown man to run, right? Because for a grown man to run, like in the, the outfit they wore, he would have it like hiked up his skirt and would have exposed some bare leg, right? It was considered shameful to expose bare leg if you were a grown man in Jesus' culture. Whenever I'm at a race, I, can always, I always feel like I can tell how serious a runner is, like pretty much based on their short length. Right, like it's like a it's like an inverse relationship, right? They're really serious guys, like their shorts are like that long. Right? And then like they've got people in the back wearing like baggy sweatpants and right. Right? And so like people like there's no shame for those elite runners to show leg and that makes them faster. But in Jesus' time, like for a man to show any leg was considered incredibly shameful. Right? And running required showing some leg, and so grown men didn't do it. And that little piece of information about the cultural view of running right, is what makes the story of the two lost sons in Luke 15 so incredible. So we're going to be in Luke 15 this morning, looking at verses 11 through 32. We have a Bible. I invite you to turn there. If you've spent time in church, right, you, you maybe probably have heard this story referred to as like the story of the prodigal son. But as a number of writers have pointed out, right, perhaps most famously Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, right, the most prodigal aspect of this story is like, the love that the father shows for his sons. And the depth of that love is displayed in how the father runs to the son, not caring about the shame that it brings on him. So when we refer to this story as the story of the prodigal son, it gives the impression that this story is primarily about the one wayward son. When we look at this story carefully and thoughtfully, what we see is that it's about a lot more than that. It's really a story about two lost sons and the father's gracious love towards both of them. In fact, if we could summarize this story in one sentence, I'd summarize it this way. The father's gracious love transforms the younger son and persists in pursuing the older son. The focus is not only on the younger son's prodigalness. The focus, on the, the focus is on the father's gracious, transforming, persistent love for both his sons. So in order to see that, let's read this passage together. It's starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Start out by saying, like, Jesus continued. Right? And before we get into this, like, that word continued is important. We've got to remember, continued from what? Right? I know some of you were probably in town for like, the holiday weekend, or you weren't here two weeks ago when I preached on the passage before this one. So here, just let me remind you of what comes right before this. So right before this, we have two more parables about lost things. There's the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And it's important to keep in mind that Jesus is telling those parables, and this parable as well, to a mixed group. They're both sinners and Pharisees in this group. They don't get along, and Jesus actually tells these parables in response 
to the Pharisee complaining that Jesus welcomed and ate with sinners. So this parable is a continuation of that same series that Jesus responds to the Pharisee's complaint that he is accepting and eating with and being friends with sinners. And so Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And I'm making this request. Right? The younger son's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't want anything to do with you. I just want the stuff that being related to you gets me. That's what he's saying. Like, it'd be better for me if you were out of my life and I just had my share of your stuff. And in that culture, the expected response would be for the the father to slap the son across the face with the back of his hand. The back of his hand because the front of his hand the front of his hand would have been considered too good to touch the sun with. Right? He needs the back of the hand. This is the shameful thing the younger son was requesting. In order to maintain his honor, the father would have been expected to shame the son and send him off. But the father doesn't do that. The father instead responds, we see in verse 12, by dividing his property between them, between the two sons. So in that culture, like the, the oldest son was entitled to a double share of whatever the other children would get in their inheritance. So in a family with two sons, right, the oldest son was entitled to two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger son to one-third. But what's interesting about verse 12 here is that word that's translated property right, is the Greek word bios, right, which means life. Right? I think Biology is the study of life. And so literally it's saying, like, so the father divided his life between the sons. And the reason Jesus says that, is it, says it that way is not because the Greeks didn't have a word for wealth or currency, like they did. Right? But the vast majority of the father's wealth would have been in land. Right? The father didn't have a 401k, he didn't have a stock portfolio. He didn't have cash stuffed under a mattress somewhere. Right? The father's wealth was all in land. And the land was so incredibly important in that culture. Right? It was a sense of place. It got passed down from generation to generation. Right? But to give the younger son his share of the inheritance, the father would have to liquidate his land assets. He would have to sell the land. But because land was so important, to sell land so he'd give the younger son his share, right? it was literally like selling a piece of himself. The land was the father's bios. It was his life. And he gives it up out of his love for this son. Continuing in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pot that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So here's, 
Here's a Jewish boy being sent off to work with pigs, right? Which, like, it's like the low of the low. I'm trying to, like, think of how we could, like, compare this. Like, all I could think of was, like, this is like if some rural Wisconsin boy like, ran off to the big city of Chicago to experience life, and he blew all his money, and the only job he could get was, like, promoting the bears. <laughs> right? Like, like, <laughs> but, like, this is even worse than that, right? That's pretty bad. Continuing at verse 17. When he, that is, the younger son, when the younger son came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, but I am no longer to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And that word hired is also important. For much of my life, whenever I've read this story, I've always thought that the son's plan was basically to go home and offer to become a a slave or a servant. He was like, like, Father, just give me room and board and I will work for you. I'll do whatever you want. But that actually isn't the son's plan. He says he wants to be like one of the hired servants. These hired servants were basically tradesmen that the father hired to do tasks around his property. What the son's actually asking for here is like for job training. He wants to go back and get job training so that he can then go get a job of his own, become a hired servant for somebody else, and then eventually make enough money to pay back the father. That's his plan. In the son's mind and in the culture's mind, the only hope he had of restoring relationship with the father was to pay back what he had taken. So his plan to pay it back was to learn a skill, go get a job, and then pay it back. His plan is to say, like, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And then continuing in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. Again, don't miss that significance. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, 
All these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because the brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And as we said earlier, like this parable is first and foremost about the father's love for his children. And in the rest of our time this morning, like, I want us to consider three aspects of the father's love that he shows to his kids. And the first of those aspects is that his love is gracious. And when I say gracious, I think there's like really two, two qualities that combine to make this love gracious. The first quality is that the father's love is gracious because it is unmerited. It is entirely undeserved. We've, we've already talked about how like, incredibly shameful it was for the younger son to, to ask for his share of the inheritance when the father was still alive. Right? That would have been like, such an insult to his father right? to say, like, I wish you were dead. Like, it's awful. Right? But it would have been like, slightly, slightly, slightly less bad if he had then taken that money and like, used it to build a good life for himself. If he had like, put the money to good use, started a business, did something that was good with that money, that would have been one thing. It would have been bad enough, but it would have been a little less bad. But the son doesn't do that. Instead, he blows the money on wild living. He took the fruits of decades and decades and decades of his father's labor, and he blew it on immoral living in no time at all. And now he comes crawling home. As he comes crawling home, he's not even hoping that he comes crawling home to restore his relationship with his father. He's not coming home out of a deep-seated remorse of how he has wronged the father he loves. He's coming home because he's hungry and he hopes his dad will feed him. That will give him some job training so that he can get his own life back on track. The younger son has done nothing Nothing to earn the father's love. So when the father shows his love to his son by shamelessly running toward him, it's entirely unmerited. That's not the only aspect that makes the love gracious. The love's also gracious because it's extravagant. When the father sees the younger son coming down the road, he doesn't just go to him like place an arm on his shoulder and say calmly, detachedly, like, son, I'm glad you're home. I still love you despite all the ways you've sinned against me. You're welcome to stay in the spare room and eat a little food. Even that would have been far more love than the younger son deserves. Even that would have been unmerited. But the father does Far more than that. He, he runs to the son. He embraces him. He kisses him. He pours out emotion that was not culturally acceptable for a, a man to show in public. 
And then he says, in verse 23, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Right, this, this best robe was a robe that was reserved for guests of honor. This ring was a, the signet ring that like, carried the father's authority with it. So by giving him the ring, he was reestablishing the son as a son and not just a mere servant. Right? Sandals even were a luxury item and servants didn't typically wear them. But the father gives the son sandals. But the real expression of the sheer extravagance of the father's love that he kills the fattened calf. It's hard to feel maybe the full weight of this when you can like go and buy a cheeseburger like everywhere. Like, walk into a gas station and buy a cheeseburger. Like, probably not the best idea, but like, you can. Right? You can buy quick trip cheeseburgers. They're, they're good. But other, other gas station cheeseburgers... Uh, but, right, but meat's everywhere. Like you can buy a cheeseburger wherever you want. Right? But meat in this culture was rare. Like you didn't eat meat at most meals. Like it, was, it was an extravagance. Like even the older brother said, like you've never even killed a goat for me to eat with my friends. But now the father goes out of his way and he kills not just any meat, right, but the fattened calf. And the fattened calf was saved for the most special of occasions. It could feed like 75 to 100 people. So by killing the fattened calf, the father's not just saying, all right, let's, let's just sit down to a nice family steak dinner. This is the father saying, like, let's have a party for the whole community to celebrate that my son has returned. Like, everyone's invited. The father's love is, is unmerited. It's undeserved. But it's also extravagant. It's, it's an all-out love. It's a lavish love. The Father's love is gracious to the Son. And God's love for us is the same. Though we wander, though we sin, though we declare with our actions that we think we're better off without Him, though we don't deserve it, God lavishes love on us. In 1 John 3, John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That is gracious love, that though we don't deserve it, God lavishes love on us, letting us be called His children. And when we experience that kind of love, it has a profound effect on us. Like it, it changes us. It is a transforming kind of love. When you first look at these, these three parables about lost things in Luke 15, like it can almost seem like the first two and then the third one have a conflicting message. Right? But the first two are all about how like a wandering sheep and a dead coin need someone to come and seek and find them. They're all about how like, the sheep and the coin will never find their way home on their own until they need to be sought and saved. And in the sermon two weeks ago, we talked about how like, we 
because we wander like sheep, because we are dead in our sins like a coin. Like We need Jesus to be the one who comes and seeks and saves us. Because we will never find our way to him on our own. But then we come to this parable, and you read it, and it kind of looks like, well, like, look, the younger son, he cleans himself up, and he returns to the father. And then seeing how he has cleaned himself up, the father then accepts him. It kind of sounds, if you're not careful, that like, like works-based righteousness. Right? But the father accepts him based on his own willingness to come home. It kind of sounds like, yes, like God will accept you back no matter how far you've wandered. Right? But first, you have to take the first step of getting yourself up out of the pigsty and returning to God. That's how often this parable is taught and understood. But I think if we look carefully at what's going on here, like we'll see that that's not actually what's happening. Right? I mentioned earlier how that the son's plan was to come home, act his father, make him a hired worker, give him job training so he could get a job and eventually pay his father back. That he could eventually earn his way back into the father's good graces through his works. And, that we, and the assumption that we typically make in our understanding of this story is that this plan is a, it's a symbol of the son's repentance. Right? That the son's showing his repentance by coming up with a plan to earn his way back into the Father's good graces. But repentance is not about earning your way back into the Father's favor. Repentance is, in the word of Kenneth Bailey, the acceptance of being found. And Bailey goes on to say, if the son is going to accept being found... He needs to drop all his bright ideas about how he is going to solve the problem. Even as the son like, starts to make his way back to the father, he is still lost. And that lostness is exemplified in the fact that he thinks he can fix everything by making some money. He thinks, if I just earn money to pay my father back, then everything will be fine. I never mind the fact that I wished him dead. But the son still has no concern about his relationship with the father. His understanding is purely transactional. Like if we just balance the book, everything is fine. But that's not what repentance is. And the father extending love first changes that plan. So look with me at verses 18 and 19 and then at verse 21. So in verse 18, like we see the younger son formulate his plan. He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And then in verse 20, we see the father run to him and shower him with love. And then in verse 21, the son's going to put that, his plan into practice. But we see how the father's love has transformed the son. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you see the difference? When it comes time to actually deliver the speech, now that he's 
receive the Father's love, the Son drops the part about acting and be made like one of the hired servants. And sometimes people say, like, the Father interrupted him. But if you look at the passage, like, there's no indication of that. Like, Greek has a word for interruption, and it's not there. The Son seems to just end his speech by not mentioning his plan to be made one of, like, one of the hired servants. The experience of the Father's love, it transformed the Son. It moved the Son away from works-based righteousness to an acceptance of being found. The Son finally understands that He can't do anything to earn His way back. All He can do is accept the Father's love for Him. And so the question is this. Have you experienced for yourself, the, the unmerited, like the lavish, transforming love of God. Have you really experienced that? Do you understand how deeply God loves you? There's nothing you can do to earn it. Or are you still trying to clean yourself up and come back to God with your plans about how you're going to make things better? You're going to live a better life in order, to, in order to earn His favor. Are you trying to pay back God by your own self-effort? Or have you accepted being found by the Father? Have you accepted that He loves you even though there's nothing you could do to deserve it? One person who failed to grasp that distinction is the older brother. Now first you might say, like, well, the older brother, he has, he has nothing to pay the Father back for. Like, he hasn't been lost who doesn't need to be found because he hasn't been lost. He's been an obedient, faithful son. But the way he responds to the father's celebration of the younger brother's return shows us that the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. In verse 28, when the older brother hears how the father has killed the fattened calf and is throwing a party for the younger brother, we are told that the, young, the older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. So why? Like, why did the older brother become angry? And the answer is because, because now that the, the younger brother has taken his share of the inheritance, everything that the father has left will one day be his. So the father throwing this party for the younger brother is depleting his future inheritance. Right? You see, ultimately, right, the younger brother and the older brother are guilty of the same core sin. Right? They both want the father's stuff more than they want the father. They've gone about going, they've gone about getting the father's stuff in drastically different ways. But in the final analysis, they both want the father's stuff and not the father. The older brother's refusal to go into the party is just as big of an offense against the father as the younger brother asking for his inheritance. In fact, the older brother's offense might be even worse culturally because he does it in public. 
Right? The whole community is there for the party, and they, they see the older brother standing outside, angry, refusing to go into the party. He's, again, shaming his father by refusing to go in. And once again, right, if the father going to save any face at all, if he's going to retain any honor in the face of this shaming, what he should do is he should ignore the older son's refusal and just enjoy the party. But he doesn't do that. He refuses, giving, he refuses to give up showing love even in the midst of this offense. The father's love is persistent. He doesn't just let the older son sit in his sin outside. He goes out and he pleads with him. Again, verse, verse 28. He, verse 28, again he says, right, so the father went out and he pleaded with him to come in. Right? He, he begged the older brother, come in and experience the joy that's found in relationship with the father. He's persistent. He keeps going to the older brother. But what's really interesting is that Jesus here doesn't tell us ever how the older brother responds. The story ends without any sign of how the older brother responds to that persistent, pleading love of the father. And like, why, why is that? The way back in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, like Luke sets the stage for these three parables by placing three characters on screen, as it were. In verses 1 and 2, he says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering about to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Right, so we have three kind of main characters. We have Jesus, we have the tax collectors and the sinners, and we have the Pharisees. And it's not an accident that there are also three main characters in this parable. That the father of the sons represents Jesus. The younger brother represents the tax collectors and sinners who were rebellion and wandering but are now gathering around Jesus. And the older brother represents the Pharisees who have lived righteous-looking lives but are actually rejecting the father. And so Jesus, by ending this parable with the older brother's response in question, is extending an invitation to the Pharisees. He's saying, like, even though you've rejected me to this point, even though you've fought against me every step of the way, even though you've been using God for your own purposes, you can still come into the party. You can still confess your lostness and accept being found. You can realize that your righteous-looking living won't save you. There may be some of you here today who have been living like the older brother. Like you, you come to church, you live a, a righteous-looking life, you do all the right things. But in, re- in response, you expect God to bless and to help you. 
you expect good health, or you ex- expect career success, or you expect a happy family, or because of your religious devotion to God, like He owes you. But Tim Keller says this, if, like the other brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey Him and be a good person, if you believe that, then Jesus may be your helper, He may be your example, or even your inspiration, but He is not your Savior. You are serving as your own Savior. So my question for you is this. Have you been coming to church or trying to be a good person in order to be a, your own savior. You've been trying to save yourself through your righteous living. And like a way to test that is like when things go wrong, do you get mad at God because you think he owes you better than that? And if you do, then that's probably an indication that You've been living like an older brother. You think God owes you something. Or maybe you've been living like a a younger brother. Like you've been off living wild, sinful life, and you've wanted nothing to do to God, but now you've seen that that lifestyle doesn't lead to fulfillment. In either case, if you've been living like an older brother or a younger brother, like the response is the same. To accept the gracious, transforming, persistent love of God. And that love of God, that gracious, transforming, persistent love is shown most clearly at the cross. When we did nothing to deserve it, we were still God's enemy. God sent Jesus to live a holy, sinless life. And to go to the cross on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sins. We didn't deserve it. It was sheer grace. If we accept and believe that Jesus did that and accept that love from the Father, that that love transforms us, causes us to live lives where we want God more than the blessing from God, transformed us to desire to live righteous lives, not because we are trying to earn God's favor, but because we just want to honor and glorify God with our lives. So if you're here and you've never accepted that love, you've never trusted in Jesus, then I urge you to do that. If you are here and you have trusted Jesus, you have accepted God's gracious love towards you, And like, live a life where you delight in a relationship with the Father. Like it's so easy to fall back into the old mistake of loving God's blessings more than God Himself. But let this passage remind us that relationship with the Father Himself and with Jesus Himself is more important than any blessings He may give us. Just... Take time to rejoice and delight in the fact that your Father loved you this much. While you were wandering, while you were living in rebellion and sin, He sent His Son 
to seek and to save you. He poured out His gracious, transforming, persistent love on you. Like you are that loved. Let your knowledge of that love transform how you live your life. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise You. We thank You for Your love toward us. We thank You that Your love is not something we can earn because if it were, we would never earn it. Will you graciously, freely, while we were still Your enemies, sent Jesus to die for us and love us that deeply. For anyone here or anyone watching who hasn't accepted and trusted in that love you have for them, would they do that? Those of us who have experienced that love firsthand, who have been transformed by your love for us. Would it be evident in our life that we have experienced that love that love be our never-ending motivation to live lives that glorify You. Would we put to death any thought that You owe us anything because of our righteousness, that we can earn anything because of our righteousness? Do we live lives that glorify You simply because we love You desire to honor you and have relationship with you. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen. As a, as a quick reminder, last Sunday was our, our final Sunday of Sunday school, so there is no Sunday school today, no summer discussion today after the service, but there is cake downstairs, as Ian said. We, we're glad that you are here with us this morning as we celebrate God's love for us. So as you go from here, would you just go amazed by the, by the gracious, transforming, persistent love God has for you? You are dismissed.